Welcome to our podcast from the Ark Insider, the Africa-focused podcast offering some informal but well-informed Africa-focused conversation touching on news, current affairs, culture, and other ongoing topics of interest. I'm Karen Allen, a former BBC Africa correspondent, and I'm speaking to you from South Africa. My co-presenter, Tara O'Connor, who leads the Pan-African Risk Consultancy firm Africa Risk Consulting, joins me from France. We both live, breathe and work African affairs and our podcast seeks to stimulate ideas among those who, like us, share a fascination with this part of the world. Tara, welcome. Hi, Karen. Welcome back to Joburg. Yes, nice to be back after a few weeks in Europe. And I have to say, you know, despite some of the challenges in this part of the world, it's very nice to be home. I'm sure it is. So we have a great guest this week from the world of chocolate, ethically sourced chocolate from Ghana. And here's a flavour, no pun intended, of what he has to say. We are fundamentally here to make people happy through chocolate, but we can only make people happy through chocolate if, if, if chocolate is right and, and if it's not got a, a kind of shame hanging over it in, 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 as an industry. Looking forward to that. And sadly, it'll be online rather than in person because I was very much hoping he might bring some samples with him. You and me both. Absolutely. Well, first, Tara, let's take a look at some of the stories in the news since our last podcast. Sudan's army has deployed tanks and heavy artillery for a large-scale offensive in the capital, Khartoum. There are reports of heavy fighting in the city. The army says that it's attacking from all directions despite a ceasefire being in place. It's part of an effort to recapture areas held by the rival rapid support forces. The army has urged people... The United Nations has accused the Malian army and foreign fighters of executing at least 500 people in March 2022 during an anti-jihadist operation in central Mali. In a damning report released Friday by the Office of the High Commissioner... The government is set to appoint an independent inquiry led by a retired judge to probe allegations made by the US ambassador to South Africa that SA supplied weapons to Russia. Now here in Paris, the French Parliament will vote later today on a text asking the EU to add the Wagner Group to its list of terrorist organisations. The Russian mercenary outfit headed by Evgeny Prigozhin, has played a conspicuous role in the war in Ukraine. It's also accused of conducting human rights abuses on the African continent. Now, as we heard there, a big geopolitical story in this part of the world is the diplomatic tussle between the United States and South Africa after the US ambassador in Pretoria, Ruben Bigotti, accused South Africa of selling arms to Russia. There's now the promise of a judicial inquiry to test those allegations. And of course, the central question is, how much did the South African president, Cyril Ramaphosa, know about these alleged dealings? And what does it say about his grip on power if he didn't? given the fact that his governing party, the ANC, is deeply factionalised. Now, as you know, one faction within the ANC has been calling for more forthright support of Russia uh, in its war on Ukraine, claiming that because South Africa has not imposed its own sanctions on Russia, it can trade arms with who it likes. Of course, that defies partnerships it's had for many in the international community. But as you've said in the past, Tara, it does privilege um, its BRICS arrangement um, over any other international agreements that it has. 
Yes, and its relationships with Russia are really very well documented, not just historic from before from before the end of apartheid, um, when the ANC was very was very tied to allied to Russia. But more recently, you know, last year, on the eve of the anniversary of the of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, South Africa engaged with Russia in naval exercises off the coast of the Cape. Mm. And then we've had other stories that have popped up, such as a Russian jet, a sanctioned Russian jet landing at a military airbase near Pretoria. And even before that, before the invasion of, uh, of Ukraine, we saw the former vice president, David Mabuza, spending up to several months um, in Russia, allegedly on medical treatment, um, but avoiding, subsequently avoiding questions about whether he had any official meetings in that time while he was, uh, while he was in Russia. Also yeah. begs the question, as we've raised before, why, why go to Russia for medical treatment when South Africa has such an, an excellent medical system. Yes, absolutely. And of course, the state TV network, Russia Today, is establishing a base here in South Africa after shelving plans to open up in a less friendly African state, Kenya. All of this really questioning uh, South Africa's stated position of neutrality towards Russia. But there is more. Tell us about this sanctioned businessman. Yes. And in fact, there is a sanctioned businessman, a Russian businessman, Viktor Vexelberg, who owns a mining company that operates in the manganese sector in, in South Africa. And it has as a major shareholder a company which is directly associated with the ANC, the ruling party. Yeah. Now, that's the Russian corner. Let's look at the US corner, so to speak. The United States is also a really important trading partner for South Africa. Uh, there's, of course, AGOA, the African Growth and Opportunities Act. Now, that provides for duty-free access for thousands of African products onto US markets. So it's a really valuable agreement. And we hear, we hear that Republicans are reportedly pushing for AGOA to be used as leverage against South Africa's stance on the Russia-Ukraine war. The United States also a major player in supporting AIDS treatment in South Africa and across the continent via its PEPFAR program. So despite members of the governing party seeking to thumb their noses at the US, South Africa relies pretty heavily on the US too. Yes, and at this time, as we said before, you know, South African can ill afford to fall out with the United States at all. Um, or face any kind of follow-up sanctions for its uh, for its dealings with yeah. Russia and with sanctioned Russian individuals. If we look at the things that have happened recently, you know, South Africa has been grey-listed by the Financial Action Task Force that monitors criminal and terrorist financing. You know, its economy is extremely vulnerable, with growth down to two percent last year and expected to decline further. And as what's making international headlines at the moment is the continuing power crisis that is undermining the entire country and is actually being presented as a metaphor for South Africa's, for the ANC's government, ANC in government. Yes, absolutely. Well, another story, but it is linked to this, has been the South African government performing a U-turn after it threatened to exit the International Criminal Court. Now, you'll remember, Tara, we visited these kind of ICC spats in the past when indicted war criminal Sudan's former leader, Omar al-Bashir, visited South Africa as part of an African Union summit and he wasn't arrested. Well, 
This time, the expected arrival of Vladimir Putin in South Africa to attend the Russia-Africa summit in August has reignited the ICC debate. Because as a signatory to the ICC, or the Rome Statute, which underpins it, South Africa would technically have to arrest Vladimir Putin if he were to step on South African soil. Government in South Africa has swiftly reacted to say that in the wake of comments saying it would leave the ICC, um, that it was not for them, uh, that actually that was actually incorrect. It was, I think, a communications error was the term that was used by the presidency and that it still intends to cooperate with the ICC, which is pretty much consistent with the South African government presenting itself as a human rights focused government. You're listening to The Ark Insider with me, Karen Allen, and my colleague, Tara O'Connor. Our guest today is Angus Thurwell, the CEO of Hotel Chocolat, which produces high-end chocolate whose origins can be traced, just like wine, to the terroir or land on which it's produced. Angus Thurwell co-founded the company in 1993 and has since listed it on the London Stock Exchange. And the company now boasts hotels in St Lucia, restaurants in London featuring cocoa-inspired recipes. Angus, lovely to meet you. You're speaking to Karen Allen in South Africa and you've got Tara O'Connor in France. Great to be on your show. Thank you for inviting me. Angus, what really drew our attention to Hotel Chocolat is that most of the cocoa comes from Ghana, where your company works with over 2,500 local farmers. Yeah, indeed. Um, we, we have two, uh, two main locations. We've got Solutia, um, where I'm, I'm, I'm calling in from today, where we run our own farm and have a network of about 75 independent growers that um, supply their cocoa into our central fermentation um, farm uh, capability. And then in Ghana, as you rightly said, we have about 2,500 um, independent farmers who are their own boss, if you like, and they're growing cocoa for us and supplying it into the Ghanaian Cocoa Board that's the main uh, kingpin of how cocoa operates in Mm. Ghana. But how did you get from St. Lucia to Ghana? Well, we, um, we wanted to become cocoa farmers ourselves so we could really understand everything about our subject matter. We wanted, um, and this is similar to the analogy of winemakers, uh, to understand all about the terroir, understand about the fermentation, how, it, how the agriculture links to communities and how the agriculture impacts nature as well. So we, we did a slightly crazy thing. We bought an old cocoa farm on the other side of the world without any previous experience in farming anything and we, right. we just learned on our own dollar so we set about creating um, a, a new a new approach which meant paying a lot more for the cocoa to make it economically viable and that really created a complete renaissance of interest in cocoa because farmers you know fundamentally want to have, raise a family and make livelihoods and through, through that catalyst, we were then able to influence the way the farming happens. So using our farm as a model farm, we were able to, for example, um, train on organic composting, methods to uh, control, we call them cocoa squirrels, but really they're jungle rats that like to eat the cocoa. So it's, it's, it's possible to trap, to trap them using... Uh, pieces of coconut rather than rodenticide and 
we're, we're against the excessive use of chemical inputs in farming and, um, and, and through, through getting the price right, uh, we were able to influence the whole methodology behind farming. And so out of that came this concept of gentle farming, which means gentle to nature, gentle to communities. And having learned something we thought was quite good in St. Lucia, we had already started to source some cocoa from Ghana as being the second largest cocoa growing nation. And we, we then had an opportunity to work with the Ghanaians in a, um, in a peer-to-peer way as cocoa grower to cocoa grower to share knowledge. And we found the Ghanaians were you know, very receptive to taking on the idea of gentle farming um, because it came with a um, substantial premium to the farm gate price that would be paid directly into individual farmers Explain that to me, Angus. Yeah, so the way um, it works in Seleucia is completely different. There's no central cocoa board. We deal directly with these independent farmers. In Ghana, there's no other option but to work with the Ghanaian cocoa board, which is the monopolistic buyer of all the output of cocoa in in Ghana. And the, um, the government buys it all at a certain farm gate price and then marks it up and sells it to the outside world. But the markup goes in, goes into the exchequer, not to the farmer. really like this phrase, gentle farming, and it, it's something that, you know, cre- creates a very, very evocative picture. But I'm, I'm just wondering, from the point of view of, of an individual farmer, there's obviously only a limited number that can work with you. Why would they choose to work with Hotel Chocolat rather than the big... Um, chocolate producers that go around the world sourcing cocoa from from around the world. Why should they be aiming for a sort of boutique relationship with yourselves? Um, well, the, the relationship that the big grower, the, the big buyers have, is with the Ghanaian cocoa board. Typically, not with not with the farmers, because the Ghanaian cocoa board is the selling entity, and we. Um, we, we saw an opportunity to bring our farming know-how, which, which does yeah. set us apart from other chocolate makers. It's very unusual for a chocolate maker to, to want to get their, you know, fingernails in the soil. And, um, and, and typically that, that is the model, that you start from the, 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 the output, the, the beans that are then roasted and conched and turned into chocolate. But like wine, most of the flavour is locked in before those beans actually leave the farm through the gene type of the cocoa and, and, and the fermentation and drying techniques that are used. The premium that we, we, we offer comes with an obligation, though. It's not, it's not free, you know, free extra money for nothing. The gentle bit needs to be delivered by the farmer. And happily, the farmers understand what we're talking about because they, they can see mm. that their soil is becoming drier they they say things like where of you know where have all the birds and insects gone, and they don't like paying through the nose for fertilizer, which is sold by a massive chemical business and prices have gone up 100% since the Ukraine war and that kind of thing. So, actually, our message of growing in a biodiverse way with shade trees over the cocoa promotes insect life to come back. Pruning your trees will give you a higher yield as opposed to piling loads of chemical fertilizer on, which will give you a one-year boost 
but ultimately will impoverish your soil. You know, the, the Ghanaian farmers' contribution into the exchequer pays for hospitals, roads, and a lot of things. It's just that in doing that, the farmers are slightly impoverished. And I think it's down to enlightened brands when they can mobilise the power of their own customers to be prepared to pay a little bit more to actually build on the, on, on the, on the let's face it, the, the good things that the Ghanaian Cocoa Board does, which is it's well organised, it collects all the beans, it's got a global reputation for good quality and it runs a tight organisation to come in over the top of that and just say, actually, we think the beans are worth a bit more. And our ask is that you don't deforest, you send your kids to school, which we know you, you don't want well, to be doing. We're going to ask you, yeah. Child labour and keeping your kids out of school. Yeah, but it's all driven by poverty and desperation. How do you make sure that at the farm gate level, if you like, the ethical standards that you've talked to us about are actually kept, that, you know, child labour isn't used? Because it, it's difficult to keep a, a really tight eye on that on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, we, we have um, an office in, um, in, in um, Unkoko in the eastern region, which is staffed by eco-warriors eco mm. who are very well-educated um, Ghanaians who feel passionate about the environment and the role that carefully and gently grown cocoa can play in partially reforesting and bringing biodiversity back. While they're, while they're out doing their rounds in the region, they're also checking um, for, for children who are working in the farms. And we're very clear that if if children have been to school and come back and they're helping out on their family's farm, there's no problem at all with that. That's the sort of thing that you see in, yeah. uh, you know, farming families yeah. all over yeah, the world. A, yeah, on a dairy yeah. farm, for example. Well, well exactly. And, um, but, if, but if that child has been deprived from the opportunities of going to school, then we, we make note of that and we remediate it um, as part of the gentle farming programme. So if it's not, if it's not corrected, then... Um, that that farm, that family would be taken off our gentle farming programme and would, would not get the premium anymore. Mm-hmm. Making cocoa farming more prosperous and making the soil less depleted means that the cross-generational bit um, actually works and you don't have to trap your children into working on the farm. They actually might want to do it of their own volition and if they don't, there's enough money around that you could sell a farm to somebody else or you could you know, hire somebody to help you run it. So very interesting. And I mean, the other part of your uh, innovation in the region is also improving the rootstock, I understand, that, that because, uh, that, I mean, these cocoa farms, the, the cocoa trees are fairly elderly, are they not? Yes, Tara, absolutely right. And um, one of the, the, the problems are, are quite, um, quite logistical, really, because a cocoa tree... Is, is really mapped to a human life cycle. From zero to five, there's not much going on. And then from five to 40, they're the most productive years. And from the age of 40 to 80 or 90, decline. And, and, that, and that's really what Sounds you see like with Sounds like us, really, tree. doesn't it? Yeah. So, a, so a farmer... <laughs> I'm, in, it, I'm it, in sharp decline in that case. <laughs> me too, me you. too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but the so 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 what it means is that a, a, a farmer has to 
replant the entire farm within within their custodianship of it. And in order to do that, they need to access cocoa seedlings of the right gene type that are going to be disease resistant. They're going to have a high success rate because the last thing you want to do is plant them out and 90% die. Um, but if you've got to go and get on a bus and go to somewhere to collect them and they're jiggled all the way on the way back, you know, it doesn't work. So as part of our gentle farming program, we deliver cocoa seedlings to our farmers and um, those are the right gene type of the right rootstock, which have a very high success rate. One of the big criticisms that have been traditionally level levied at um, at the big producers and big growers is the lack of beneficiation, or what you say, that's, a, that's mm. mainly a mining term, but the lack of production domestically of transforming uh, the cocoa locally into chocolate end product and that sort of valuation. What 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 would you say to that? Yeah, I, t- I totally agree. Um, the, the the opportunities are really around the, um, the the roasting of 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 the cocoa. Once it's been so so, basically, the stages are. Um, fermentation and drying which happen on the farm and the farmer is paid for that then there's the logistics of collecting those beans and getting them to a central roastery which um, can be in Ghana or it can be in Europe or North America the model we prefer is to roast in um, Accra and that's what we do so the beans are are then converted into uh, a very basic form of chocolate which is uh, no added sugar at that point or no added milk powder. And they're cast into big blocks, which then mean that they're also very efficient to ship um, on, on the ocean because there's no air gaps between them. So those blocks are, are, are covered. And then we receive them in the UK in what's called that uh, cocoa liquor stage. So we we thought about can we go beyond that and can we can we actually transform them into you know more advanced chocolate in in Accra, and the answer is not without end to end temperature control um, and humidity control because um, chocolate is, is is very susceptible to both those things, and that's why the final stage of the manufacturing is better done near the consumer market. Angus, this has been absolutely fascinating and clearly, you know, your cocoa beans are very, very carefully nurtured, loved and and produced and and sort of transported under very, very careful conditions. And I guess, you know, it's very much a boutique market and it beggars the question, how much does a bar of chocolate cost? Yeah, and, and that's, that's really, um, you know, one of the big questions when a consumer looks at chocolate, is it all the same or not? And our rule of thumb is that if the number one ingredient when you flip over the, uh, the pack is sugar, it's not actually chocolate, it's confectionery. Mm. There's no excuse for proper chocolate not to have cocoa as the number one ingredient, even with milk chocolate and even white chocolate, which is cocoa butter based. In all those cases, cocoa should be the number one ingredient and sugar used more sparingly in order to use the name chocolate. So I haven't been able to 
get the rules changed around this. This is not an official line from the not UK like government. Or, yes. No, exactly. But um, I'll, I'll continue the fight on that. So, so we're in a world where everything, anybody can use the word chocolate. If it's brown and it says it's chocolate, then, you know, it is as far as the law is concerned. Um, on closer examination, one of the things to look at is the price per gram of the cocoa. Ostensibly, my business, Hota Chocolat's chocolate, is three times more expensive than cheap chocolate that you can yeah. buy in a petrol station or yeah. a corner shop. But when you look at the amount of cocoa we use, it's three times more cocoa for every 100 grams of chocolate we make. So actually, we're charging the same as, a, as cheap chocolate per gram of cocoa. The question the consumers need to answer is, how much sugar do I want with my cocoa? And yeah. we are gradually winning, winning a battle to, taste, to change taste buds that even with milk chocolate, you should be able to get a decent um, cocoa flavour first, a delicious melt and a, you know, a, creamy, a creamy soft edge from the milk. And then it, there should be a dash of sweetness. My mouth is watering want. as you speak, Angus, but the thought <laughs> yes. of this. But is this, <laughs> yeah, is, is this a chocolate that you would have with a cup of coffee after a meal? This isn't a coffee, a one that you'd grab in the car. We're being quite careful to try not to be elitist, um, Karen, because it's the easiest thing in the world to um, retreat into elitism on this subject. But people are not going to be able to afford it on the farms where you grow it. Uh, no, but, e but e even in the markets that we, we sell into, we, we're, we aim to have something for everybody. I mean, in, in, in the UK, we sell pieces of chocolate that cost £2. Mm. So you get a lot less of it than you would if you were buying a £2, you know, count line from a petrol station. But actually, it, you know, when you, when you eat it, how fulfilled do you feel one versus the other? And the thing about sugar is it gives you um, an instant sugar fix hit and goes into your bloodstream, but shortly afterwards you have a crash and yes. you feel worse than you started off, you know, wretched and have to go and have a lie down. Whereas cocoa, <laughs> cocoa is packed full of theobromine and makes you feel powerful and, you know, it's, it's proper energy food and makes you feel great. So, again, possibly it's... Possibly an aphrodisiac, a, yeah. A possibly an aphrodisiac, yeah. which, um, which we'll definitely uh, corroborate. But, um, and, 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 the and, and, and the reason it's thought of as an aphrodisiac is because of the dilation of all the blood vessels in the body that occur when you consume uh, cocoa. So, yeah. including, including those muscles without you yes. know, those blood vessels rather without going too much into graphic detail on this particular podcast but um but it also um increases um brain activity as well so it's particularly good at fighting yeah. um you know alzheimer's and and a sort of dementia in in keeping the blood vessels dilated through regular consumption of of, of cocoa clearly a must are there other ways that your farmers benefit from the end product sale really interesting um i mean what we're exploring in Lucia is ways that the, our farmers can benefit from um other income streams for example hosting guests in our hotel to come and uh, come to their home they can brew up some cocoa tea. They can um, give our visitors a tour of their farm. 
and we will charge for that and we will give them the money. So cocoa farming is, is a beautiful thing to do. I mean, walking in a cocoa grove is, is just magical. And many of the consumers that come and stay in our hotel that we have here in the middle of our cocoa farm, we, we know that many more people want to do that and they want to connect with the farmers. So there's no reason, again, once we've incubated it and, and learned and made the mistakes on our own dollar here in St. Lucia, why we can't Cocoa export tourism. that model mm. into Ghana. Yeah, using the power of uh, you know, social media and connections over distance, a lot of consumers would like to make a connection with, um, I don't know, Monique, who's a great cocoa farmer in, uh, in the, that we have in Eastern Region. She came through our Young Farmers Programme. Um, she was given land by, the, by her community. We gave her some seedlings, um, some wellies and a cutlass, which is a machete. And, you know, now she's a thriving cocoa farmer. And, you know, basically, I know that... A, a ton of Herde Chocolat customers would love to connect with her in some way that we're exploring how we monetize that. And it could lead it could lead to another income stream, which doesn't necessarily have to be about mm. products being shipped over long distance. Fascinating. Absolutely gripping. Angus, I've been practicing all my puns, but this has been an absolutely delicious podcast. And I have to thank you for being such a sweetie of a guest uh, in our podcast today. I'm certainly giving us lots of food for thought. And I actually added that one without uh, pre-rehearsing it. But it's been fascinating. Three in one (laughs) sentence. That's pretty good. Yeah, That's pretty good. I'm very impressed. Well, thank you for giving me the chance to talk about gentle farming. You know, you can tell we're already, you know, a bit obsessed about it. But it does give us, in, as an organisation, a lot of purpose. And, you know, we, we are fundamentally here to make people happy through chocolate. But we can only make people happy through chocolate if, if, if chocolate is right. And, and if it's not got a, a kind of shame hanging over it in, 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 as an industry. We're very happy to offer our services as chocolate tasters, I'm sure. <laughs> <As> tasters. <laughs> Well, that's it for the ARK Insider. If you're interested, ARK publishes in-depth risk briefings on 22 countries around the continent. You can subscribe to these at info at africariskconsulting.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do let us know. You can use the same address and do feel free to share our podcast on social media and amongst friends. Our sound engineer was Ludwig Boer and this podcast is a Karen Allen International production. Bye for now.